Rules to Reality is a podcast that highlights how regulation shapes or fails to shape our daily lives. I'm speaking to you from Wurundjeri country and would like to pay my respects to Elders past and present and any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people listening today. I would also like to acknowledge the ongoing role that colonisation and racist regulation has had on First Nations, but also First Nations resilience and survival in continuing to connect and practice the oldest living culture in the world. Today I speak with Dr Nikki Vincent, Victoria's first Gender Equality Commissioner. Dr Vincent is responsible for overseeing the 2020 Gender Equality Act, which aims to address gender inequality in all Victorian public sector workplaces and promote gender equality to the community more broadly. I actually met Nikki during her previous role as South Australian Commissioner for Equal Opportunity, which she served in from 2016 to 2020. In today's talk, Nikki makes clear that gender equality is still an issue, how the Victorian government has tried to address this through world-first legislation, but she also unpacks some of the moral and social responsibilities on people like myself who have benefited from inequality. So please enjoy this episode, subscribe, and rate the podcast on iTunes or Spotify. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Vincent, who is the Commissioner for Gender Equality here in Victoria. Um, it's, a, it's a pleasure to have you here today. Thanks very much, Simon. My pleasure too. Thank you. Well, look, the first question we normally start out with this podcast is, uh, is one about what connects you to regulation. And that's partly because um, it's not an obvious connection that the regulation has to, to the things we care about. What does that question mean to you? Well, it's interesting because I, I, I guess I'm, you know, as the Gender Equality Commissioner in Victoria, I'm implementing a piece of legislation that that makes me a regulator, I suppose. And in my previous role as the Commissioner for Equal Opportunity in South Australia, I I um, I was the administ- administered the Equal Opportunity Act uh, in South Australia, and again, you know, that made me a regulator. But I I never really thought about it in that way until you um, you asked me to to come along and do this podcast. So. Um, I, I, I guess I think, you know, in, in, the, in the case of what I'm doing here in Victoria, implementing this kind of groundbreaking um, legislation, it's critically important because, um, because gender equality is, a, 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 you know, like so many uh, big problems, it's, it's, it's a wicked, it's an adaptive problem and there's no real easy fix and it's something we've been trying to come to grips with and deal with for so, so long. Um, and, you know, we've got equal opportunity legislation or uh, anti-discrimination legislation in each state, but, it, you know, still they don't go far enough. We've still got this problem of gender inequality. Um, and so what I love about um, the Gender Equality Act is it's kind of, it, it kind of says this is no longer a nice to have. This is now a must have. And it's, it, it, it covers, you know, 300 organizations in the public sector that it can control. Um, and, and it should be, uh, you know, leading, uh, the leading lights in the area of gender equality or 
um, battling inequality, if you like, mm. um, and it has the potential to really make a change that provides an example for, for the rest of of the state and the rest of the country and perhaps even internationally because it's it's built on a lot of other sort of legislation but gone but gone beyond most of that so at this stage it is it is um i think world leading legislation so yeah i think it's a, it's it's kind of about driving real change in an area that has been a real a really intractable bunch of issues for for, for so long I, I totally agree, and, and um, uh, well, I agree, but I have far less expertise, so that's not as relevant. Um, but I, um, I, I totally agree that the, the Gender Equality Act that, that you speak to is, um, it is a, you know, certainly uh, to my knowledge, an Australian first. I'm sure it's world first in in lots of ways too, um, and it speaks to just to to circle back on the point you were making. It's more than just laws. It's you know, good regulation is about showing that those laws matter and that you've got yeah. a commitment to to ensuring that those that those things actually take place in terms of people's lived experience of the law. Yeah. Absolutely. It, it's, that's what I meant about saying, well, this isn't just a nice to have now. This is a must mm. have. Um, mm. You know, it, it, um, women are 51% of the population and, you know, we absolutely should be equal and yet there are still so many ways um, uh, in, in which women are unequal, in, particularly in workplaces, which is what a large part of this Act is directed to, uh, although it does go beyond that. You know, we've still got women having to work an extra 61 days, um, you know, to earn the same as men at a sort of gross level. We, um, we've got uh, you know, we, we know the World Economic Forums has recently come out and said that based on the current pace of change, it's now going to take 135.6 years to close the gender gap worldwide, you know, another 135.6 years. Um, and, and we slipped back uh, by six places. We're now sort of number 50 in the world around gender equality, which is appalling. And, I mean, mm. a lot of good work's been done in, in Victoria already, but we mm. we still got... Uh, a long way to go but yes you're right it shifts it, it shifts the mindset you know you can you can put off big wicked problems mm. if you know forever um or tinker um with them but this act now says you need to take this seriously and and it's great because it's got it's got some teeth as well which i hope i never have to use but uh which a lot of equality legislation what's I, I don't think any of the um equal opportunity or anti-discrimination legislation around australia has teeth mm. um there are some consequences um obviously but this has real teeth so i think that that's that's what i love about this this piece of legislation yeah absolutely and that's what and it's it's um it's sophisticated to me as well, and it, it understands what the levers for change are, um, which is why I thought it was such a good kind of regulatory instrument. Um, yeah. So the, the Gender Equality Commission, like you say, and the Gender Equality Act are the first of their kind, could you give us an overview of what it is and what it, broadly what it's trying to do and how? Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, and, and the, the thing I should say about this piece of legislation is that it, it really, so there was a, a big consultation uh, process and there was a, uh, a citizen's jury as well that was held. And what happened was that the, the draft legislation was actually strengthened as a result of the consultation process. So when you read the submissions and there were 
you know, 50-odd plus submissions and then we had the, the citizens' jury and so forth. You can see the submissions in the in the legislation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's exciting because it, it feels very much like a, um, a, a community-led piece of uh, a legislation or community influence or strongly influenced piece of legislation. So it, it commenced on the 31st of March this year. Um, it it um, was enacted in February the, the year before, so just before COVID. Um, it, it, it applies to over 300 organisations across the public sector. So uh, all of the public service and broader public sector organisations, plus all of the nine universities in Victoria and all of the local, all local governments, so 79 local councils as well. They're called defined entities under the Act, but those, those organisations cover 380,000 workers or 11% of the Victorian workforce. So not everyone, but a good chunk. Um, and as I say, organisations that should be leading on gender equality, uh, in my view. The first obligation is that they must undertake a workplace gender audit. They've got seven key indicators and they've got to look at the state and nature of gender equality or inequality in their organisations across these. So gender composition at all levels of the workforce and in their governing bodies, um, workplace sexual harassment, so that that's been reported to them and how that's been handled and um, non-disclosure agreements and all of that sort of thing, plus a, um, a, a, a survey that's looked at, a, um, an anonymous survey that's allowed employees to say if they've experienced sexual harassment, whether they reported it or not, and if they didn't, why not, and so forth. So we're going to get the sort of undisclosed as well as disclosed. Um, recruitment and prom- uh, promotion practices, gendered segregation in the in the workplace, and then things like access to leave, uh, family and domestic violence leave, carers leave, and flexible working. Uh, and then finally, Um, but importantly, gender pay equity or inequity or gender pay discrimination, as I like to label it. Um, So once they've got all of that data, they then have to analyse it and then a requirement, an obligation under the Act is for a full consultation process. So that consultation has to uh, involve employees, um, employees, governing body if necessary, if if appropriate, but also importantly, um, employee representatives, so union representatives as well. And that through that consultation process, they develop the actions that they will take to address any inequality that they find. Those actions then form a gender equality action plan. And the data and the action plans must be submitted to me. Uh, They must do it by a certain date. Uh, It was in the Act, it's 31st of October, but I've extended both deadlines for data and um, gender equality action plans. Data is due on the 1st of December. Action plans are due on the 31st of March next year. Once we've checked those, um, that data and those action plans for compliance with the Act, because there are some minimum standards around, around that as well, then those... Uh, that data and those action plans must be published on each organisation's website. Um, they must alert their governing bodies and their staff and so forth. We will also publish that on our website. Plus, we have a data platform. All the data is going in. And so anyone, members of the public, will also be able to come along 
and search particular organisations and get high-level high sort of data visualisations about that organisation and about where they sit in their sector, you know, um, and, and, and things like that around all sorts of indicators. Um, so that's the first couple of obligations and then um, and so you can think about the level of transparency all of that data all of those plans um, people uh, employees uh, governing bodies my commission the public the media uh, I'm sure will be interested in some of this will be able to hold organizations to account and probably that'll drive some some healthy competition between organizations because they you know in talking to many of them they want to be the best in their sector and then the Act requires that each organisation makes reasonable and material progress on those on what they said they were going to do in their Gender Equality Action Plan. So they, they report to me every two years on how they're going in what they said they were going to do. And as I say, must make reasonable and material progress. And then that cycle um, begins again every four years. So another audit, another Gender Equality Action Plan or update a Gender Equality Action Plan and so forth. So... It's, um, it's going to create change over, over time. So that this first lot of data will just be setting what's your baseline. Um, and we say, we're saying to organisations, it doesn't have to be perfect. Like, and you don't have to be the best. You know, it's where you go from here that is actually really important. Um, and then the other really important and interesting obligation that I think is going to have such far-reaching uh, impacts is gender impact assessments. And these... Bearing in mind, we're dealing with public sector organisations, universities and local government. They have to undertake gender impact assessments now from the 31st of March on every single policy program or service that has a direct and significant impact on the public. So anything new and anything that comes up from, for review after the 31st of March. And when you think about the work that all of these organisations do, it's so public focused, that's going to be a lot of impact in terms of understanding the gendered impacts uh, of policies, programs and services. Um, because what we know is that often men are used as a standard unintentionally, but, you know, there's this kind of, you know, um, sort of um, public uh I would say Joe Public, if you like, um, and we, we we don't think about Josephine Public and we don't think about intersectional impacts as well, and I can talk more about them. So um, this is going to drive change, I think, for the community. The, the, um, and those, the results of any gender impact assessments that are done must be reported to me in progress reports every two years and the actions that were taken as a result of that. Um, we also... Um, have the possibility of developing targets and quotas. I'm not going to, to even think about that until after we've got this first lot of data in and we think about where they might reasonably be applied. Um, we can also influence procurement and funding, uh, government funding, and we're running a pilot around government funding at the moment um, that we might we will potentially roll out right across government. Um, procurement's a big one because there's a lot of dollars spent by government on procurement every year. And, and so we've got the capacity, as I said, to implement, influence that. Um, we also have dispute resolution powers. So I have dispute resolution powers, I should say. So, um, But they're different to what you see in normal equality, uh, equal opportunity legislation, anti-discrimination leg legislation. I can't take individual complaints, but I can um, help resolve 
disputes of structural or systemic gender inequality that relates to those seven key indicators, pay, inequity, sexual harassment, um, segregation in the workforce and so forth. They, they can be brought to me uh, if they impact a class or group of employees. Um, so a union could bring uh, a dispute to me if it related to a class of a, a group of employees in a particular workplace. A group of employees could bring that dispute to me. Even an employer could bring that dispute to me. Now, um, what I can use are, are any forms of dispute resolution, um, conciliation. I can make recommendations and so forth. Then, then it's non-binding. The outcomes are non-binding, and the whole um, process is voluntary. Um, but we're finding even employers are quite interested because they don't know how to deal with you know, stuff that's kind of baked into the very sort of structure of their organisations. Mm -hmm. um, it's historical, you know, it's not those individuals that are to blame, but they, they don't know what to do about changing it. So they're interested in getting kind of best practice advice about that. So we've set all of that up. No one's brought a complaint to us. Uh, yeah, I guess we're waiting for data to come out from our mm -hmm. first tranche of data. Um, but it's a very interesting and exciting uh, kind of power as well. Mm. So the Act, as you say, it does kind of cover so many bases. It's really, when I was reading it, I was like, they thought of everything. <laughs> this was before I applied for the job. So mm -hmm. I think it's got such great potential. Yeah, there's a lot of teeth. I don't know how to fit them all in the mouth. Um, <laughs> the regu <laughs> regulatory teeth. And, yeah, it, um, uh, the... Um, it's yeah. I feel like gender equality doesn't stand a chance now. Um, <laughs> well, the, that's what I yeah. want you to feel. So that's exactly. Really no, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. No. And 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 I I really liked the way that you uh, the framed. Quite often we can sanitize concepts by talking about um, gender equality or human rights, but we you know talking about gender inequality. Um, you know the people who privilege from inequality. I, I'll put myself in that category. Um, uh, uh, or human rights breaches, it it, it orients us. It's I, I think that's an indication of a reg regulator with their finger on the pulse of what the actual issues are here, I think, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we do know a lot about inequality. We don't know everything. And one of the things that I'm doing is setting up a sort of research arm of the commission to, to, to basically bring as much research around all of this together and then translate that into um, actionable outcomes for organisations. Um, so we want to have that role, but we then also want to understand, well, what don't we know? Where are the gaps and, and where are the nuances in how we might apply research? And so we've funded five research projects already and we'll be um, hopefully able to do a lot more of that uh, uh, to, to really build. I mean, we need that. Obviously, we need that information to help us in the dispute resolution side of things. We need to build up our knowledge bank there. Um, but, but there is a lot of research already. And that's the thing. We've done all this research. We know all this stuff and still inequality persists. Yeah. And so, you know, it's now great to actually have a, a piece of legislation to, 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 to also assist in driving change. It's not everything, but I think it can, it can you know, make a real difference nevertheless. Absolutely. It's good regulators like yourself um, to, to drive that change as well. And, and, and I guess one of the uh, it's it's probably quite challenging to to forecast this at this stage because uh, because you're um you know you're still sort of collecting the data analyzing where the inequalities exist um, but I imagine that there's always going to be a, a tension 
you know, um, in that regulatory relationship between the carrot, you know, in terms of providing that information, support, advice and the stick. You've obviously got some compliance um, powers there or um, kind of naming and shaming powers that would be a more informal one. How do you think... uh, how do you foresee striking that balance um, in the future if, if you haven't gotten to that point where you have to consider it just yet? Yeah, yeah. Um, I love I love the fact that the compliance powers are there, uh, um, but I hope I don't ever have to use them. So in my functions as commissioner, there are about six or seven functions and a whole bunch of them are about supporting organisations to meet their obligations. And there's one about compliance. So... Um, I I think that sort of tells you what the balance is. So um, although we're a small organisation, there are only 15 of us, and when that's not 15 FTE, that's 15 bodies, 15 people, um, some of whom work part-time, including me, and we are building that up, but it's a small team, so we have to work collaboratively. We can't do everything ourselves, but our focus has very much been on um, training, uh, support, public speaking, helping organisations understand what the obligations are. We've written guidance materials. We've done, we've rolled out training right across the sector uh, to the 300 organisations. I've pretty much spoken to every one of those organisations as well in some way, shape or form. Um, And, you know, we're not expecting perfection straight away. You know, this is the first time this has been done. We're still learning uh, as well. And it's one of the reasons why I emphasise the tininess of the team as well, because we haven't done everything perfectly. Um, you know, it's we've had lots of challenges, COVID being one of them, and setting up a virtual commission. Some of many of my staff I haven't even actually met face to face. And we, we've only had an office for about two weeks uh, in all of the time that I've been commissioner. Um, and some people weren't even able to come in during the two weeks that we had the office open. Oh, gosh. So, you know, it's, that's been challenging. We've had, we've had, we've been mobbed into a different department during this period um, and we've had hold-ups around our, our IT platform, our reporting platform and so forth that, that have been, you know, related to the shortage of work in, uh, of, of people working in, in that, that area, the demands on that, that kind of IT sector. Um, so there have been challenges. Um, so, but, but also we've, we ask for intersectional data as well. I, I touched on that before and I think it's really important and one of the, the really innovative things about this Act is that it inc- incorporates intersectionality. So it says gender inequality can be compounded by things like race, um, uh, disability, age uh, and so on. And, and so where possible, we want organisations to bring both a gender and an intersectional lens to their audits but also to their gender impact assessments. Now, that's very new for a lot of organisations. A lot of organisations don't collect data um, around, you know, race and um, and disability and so forth. And there's privacy issues around that. So we're not going to have a perfect data set and we're going to have to help organisations collect that data in ways that that um, that feel safe for people who, you know, to actually reveal those sorts of things about themselves. Um, and so at first we've just said, well, if you don't have it, what we'd like to do is see how you propose to collect that data um, over time and perhaps have it so that you set that up for your next uh, gender equality action plan and so forth. So there's been a lot of you know, setting realistic expectations for organisations, 
um, letting them know that this is just a baseline data, you know, it's the next lot of data that's going to be the, the one that, you know, we want to see the change and so forth. Um, so it's really only willful non-compliance. And, oh, and then there's the, um, as I said, the transparency. So it sets up a little bit of that competitive spirit between organisations. No one's going to be the want to be the bottom organisation in their sector. So I'm hoping that's all going to drive the change as well. But so it's really only willful um, lack of uh, um, of meeting obligations where I, I would have to use the compliance powers. And then the starting point for that is um, me coming in and working with the organisation to try and help them get over the line and informally. I might issue a compliance notice. If that doesn't work, I can go to the minister. The minister can work with the organ or talk to the organisation about it, bearing in mind these are all public organisations. They will all have ministers um, covering them. Um, and I can name and shame. But finally, if I still don't get compliance, I can apply to the Victorian Civil and Administrative Tribunal for an order directing that organisation to comply. And by that stage, it's all public anyway. So there's that sort of naming and shaming kind of embarrassing thing. Uh, so, again, yeah. I hope I never have to use all of that. It's great to have it there because it does kind of make people sit up and take notice that this is an act that must be uh, taken notice of, um, but I think the transparency does that as much as anything as well because because it's going to be obvious if organisations haven't complied, their data is going to be missing, um, yeah, and yeah. there will there will be public scrutiny of that. Yeah, well, and and I think that um, you know my experience with, with uh, that that's the right way to, to and and it's interesting you say that you've got the the latter um, option to go to the court seek an order as well. Um, uh, I sort of, a lot of regulators I know don't even have compliance notices, let alone be able to, to go above that go above that point. So, I mean, it, it is, it does signal the importance of the, um, of the issue. And um, from my experience in sort of the regulatory space, um, it's, you, you do need those bits at the top of the pyramid for the things at the bottom to, to be, to be taken up. And so, like you say, hopefully it's not used, but the fact that, that those things are there are, are crucial, I think, because it, it says you've got to, you'll, we're going to find a solution to this problem one way or another. Exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. It feels, it feels good to be, um, you know, I feel so privileged to be uh, in this role as commissioner and, 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 um, and leading this work with my amazing team, like, Director yeah. Kate Berry and an amazing team of people because, because of the way it's been written and because these compliance powers let everyone know, as you say, that this, this is, this is, you're, you, you have to do this. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I mean, you know, it just, we've been fighting for this yeah. for so long, you know, and finally there's a government here saying this is absolutely important. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it'll be it'd be interesting because uh, you know um, I reflect on on um, I'm now a gun for hire as a consultant, but my time in the public sector, um, you know, you didn't know what the gender um, pay gap, or, or at least I didn't anyway. Um, and and um, it should be an issue of concern for for well, it's definitely obviously an issue of concern for people who are um, disadvantaged by that inequality, but it should be an issue of concern for people who. Um, who benefit from it too and so I guess I'm wondering in, in, in addressing that inequality um, uh, what's the role from 
Well, the, what are the roles for, for people who are, who are harmed by that or disadvantaged by that inequality? And then what do you think is the role for, and, and I'll put myself in that bucket of someone who um, I don't know specifically, but would have generally benefited from that inequality. What are the differing roles that you see, aside from perhaps the, the one you have yourself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, in most areas of life, it's the people who are disadvantaged that are the ones that always have to do the fighting to get noticed and get change and so forth. And, you know, I mean, that's the historically that's no different here in terms of gender inequality. I mean, you know, the signs that there are more uh, more men are understanding the problem and wanting to create change now. We've got, you know, groups like the um, the coalition, the coalition for change, the, formerly the male champions for change, and so forth, where they're asking senior men in very influential roles to step up alongside women and 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 take on uh, take this on because we do we really do need. Um, leadership to to create this change um i, I think um i mean we shouldn't expect people who experience and are disadvantaged by a structural problem to fix it they, they it hasn't been successful um you know i i do think uh uh having people in leadership mostly they are men in senior leadership we do have senior women now but but mostly it's it's still men in those senior roles um, you know, need to understand the problem, need to understand the advantages and privileges that they have and, uh, and, and and not blame themselves for it because most of us are not, you know, uh, conscious um, on a daily basis of our privilege. I mean, as a white woman, I am privileged in many ways, um, uh, you know, I think, but I don't look in the mirror every morning and think, aren't I privileged because I'm a white woman? We, we just don't. Um, and, and so, um, we, you know, we need to be aware of our privilege and we need to be actively working to, uh, to tackle the disadvantage uh, caused, by, caused by that for others. Um, but... Uh, you know, I, I could talk about that for <laughs> forever, and I'm, uh, you know, I think that's that's slowly shifting, um, and I think this act will help that along. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a huge issue. Yeah, and I. I agree. I hope the listeners don't think I am expecting um, the, the, those those harmed by it um, to to be responsible for fixing it. Um, but it, it'll be interesting to see with your dispute resolution service um, if it's all all women that are um, having. So I wonder if there's going to be if you will see evidence of allyship um, from from um, from people who are benefiting from the status quo but still wanting to change it i think that'll be an interesting thing to reflect on i imagine down the line when yeah. you do start getting complaints yeah yeah i agree I'm, i mean a lot of uh um a lot of men are um are talking about this are wanting to be allies now um and you know i think 
there's, I mean, there's this organic change that occurs and is occurring and we're seeing men who are disadvantaged by not being able to get, part, uh, you know, but go part-time or get flexible work. Like that's seen as a, a thing that women can do quite legitimately and then they get disadvantaged because they are doing that because they're not considered as serious about their roles and so forth. And men are scared to do that because they know they'll be subject to those same discriminations and we know from research that they are if they yeah. if they take up part-time work or they take up um uh you know flexible work for caring and so forth but but there are men who want to do that that want to be involved in uh the raising of their children want to be equal partners and are disadvantaged by gender norms and stereotypes that don't allow them yeah. or look down on them for doing yeah. that so you know, gender equality has benefits for us all, and I think, you know, the, the, I mean, you would you you would be know much more about this than I would. That you know, men uh, and the suicide rate for men is so high, and it's mm. uh, you know, some of that is about the the ideals uh, and the gender rigid gender stereotyping for men who, you know, you can't talk about your feelings, you can't share your problems, you mm-hmm. um, you have to live up to the sort of macho ideals. Um, and, you know, men in construction, the suicide rate's incredible there. Um, you know, the, the, the hours that you're expected to work and the relentlessness of the work and the, the days, you know, it's six-day weeks and so on and the, and the adversarial environment that, that is, uh, is prevalent in a lot of, on a lot of work sites and so forth takes its toll on men, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And so seeing those things shift... Um, I think will actually drive change as well. And, and so I hear a lot of men, I actually did a podcast um, for Radio National, I think it came out a couple of days ago for big ideas around construction and there was a, a man who runs um, a, um, a construction company talking about and he had a, um, a program of work where he had 50% women and he said it was much more pleasant environment to work in you know and you have a lot of men saying that it's much less adversarial when you have more women involved and so forth and and I think that's all around gender norms and so forth as well so I think we will see more men being part of driving this change when they can see the benefits for them. Um, and at the moment, those benefits aren't there because they are still subject to the rigid stereotyping as well. Yeah, it's so interesting you say that. It's I was um, talking in an event recently on mental health discrimination and saying that um, it's it, we use different terms for some of these things. So we talk about stigma in mental health, but um, you know, I, I said that, like, I think there's gender-based stigma in the, in, in the sense of. Um, I said there's a real stigma about, you know, men talking about their feelings, about being vulnerable, um, you know, and um, I think with most forms of stigma and if you, you can, which you can connect closely to discrimination, um, you know, that there are norms that want to control and order society in a particular way and um, they might advantage some people in some situations but definitely disadvantage um, people who don't fit those categories. So, um I think there's a lot that, yeah, that there will be challenging, challenging conversations for us to have as, as men. Um, um, But there are, I think on the other side of those conversations and those reflective processes, um, I think we will be, that's not the sole reason we should do it, but we'll be better for that as well. Yeah. Yeah, Right. Agree. So you've, um, you've got the ear of, of our listeners today, um, Nikki, Um, uh, you've, you've explained, 
what I think is a you know world's best practice regulatory um, framework. Um, you've explained what the problem is, which is we're not just talking about gender equality here. We're talking about gender inequality and addressing those things. How are you going to do that? You've also highlighted, you know, um, uh, the, the minimal role, and I think that's absolutely fair to say, the minimal role that um, people negatively affected by the issue has uh, mm-hmm. issue have, the, the significant role those who benefit from it have. But what's what are some things that you want the listeners to, to do after hearing you speak today? Well, I, um, I could talk about the Act and, you know, focusing on uh, all of the things that they find and, you know, if you, if you think inequality doesn't exist, then do a gender audit of your organisation. You can go download the, the materials. They're all on our website. They're freely available. You don't have to be covered by the Act to use them and you can do all of this yourself, as I say, even if you're not covered by the Act and I would encourage people to do that. But I, there are two things that I think have been are pretty fundamental um, and both of which I've done. So I'm not recommending them, you know, without having subjected myself to them. Um, and the first one is to understand your own your own unconscious bias. And most people don't recognise this. Uh, and I found out about, um, it's called the Harvard Implicit Assumptions Test. They're, they're kind of an um, online, um, it's an online ongoing uh, research project. It's been going for years and years and years. And you can go in and see if you have unconscious biases about race, about people with a disability, about older people and gender. And way before I became, I even got to be a commissioner in South Australia, I was running a, a leadership organisation like the, um, the Williamson in Victoria and programs, the community leadership programs all around Australia. And I, I, I wanted to, we were doing something on race and I wanted to understand if I had an unconscious racial bias. So I, I thought, right, I've heard about these tests and I, I was nervous, but, you know, no one knows. You don't have to give your details and you don't have to share the data with anyone. But I I took the racial bias test and I was so happy with myself because I actually found I didn't have a racial bias. And you can't fake these tests. They're about sort of speed of information processing. They'll flash up an image and a word and it's how quickly you can um, associate or not associate that word with a particular um, uh, face. Um, and so it, in the case of race, it might put up someone with dark skin and put up a negative word uh, or a positive word. And it's kind of how quickly you are able to associate words and, and, and skin colours and, and so forth. And so I gave myself a big tick and I was like, wow, I'm not racially biased and I feel very proud of myself. And then I thought, I'll just go give myself another tick and do the gender equality one. And I found that I had a slight bias towards associating words uh, about leadership and agency with men and words about caring uh, and and children and, and, and all of those sorts of things with women. And I was mortified. I wasn't the Equality Commissioner, I wasn't the Gender Equality Commissioner, but I'm telling you now, I found I had a gender bias. And, and then I research more about it and I was like okay most people do we're we're born into a society that thinks about gender before a baby's even born there's a gender reveal parties and there's you know we want to find out what the gender of our baby is so we can decorate the nursery accordingly you know um gender kind of is is part of our lives 
in very sort of rigid and structured ways for, for almost everyone. And so it's not surprising that we have a bias. But finding out that you do is really important because if you know you have one, then you can actually do something about it. You can you can mitigate it when you're uh, thinking about selections and you're thinking about people for roles and things like that. And I realised when I discovered my own gender bias and I started reading more about it was that, you know, I had, when, when a, a senior person in my team had a baby, I I thought, well, I, you know, we've got this coming up and it requires a lot of interstate travel, so that's not something that's going to be of interest for her. And I realised I should have asked her. Like, maybe she had a partner that was perfectly able to look after the children and she would have loved to do that interstate travel. So I realised that I had been unconsciously biased towards women and women with caring responsibilities. So it allows you to do something about it. So it's called Harvard, Harvard Implicit Assumptions Tests. Um, you can find them at Project Impl Implicit Harvard, so project.implicit.harvard.edu, and there are Australian versions of the test, and I would encourage you to go and do that. The second thing, and I'll be really quick about this, is read the book, if you haven't already, by Caroline Criado Perez that's called Invisible Women. And this is an amazing book. It's become my sort of Bible and I recommend it to everybody. I've got about five copies because people keep giving it to me and I keep giving it to everybody. It documents all the ways in which the world has been designed without considering women. And it's in medicine, it's in um, it's in um, uh, car safety where crash test dummies are always male bodies and even when they put crash test dummies that are supposedly women, they're just smaller versions of male bodies and they certainly don't account for pregnancies and different anatomical differences, which mean that women are much more likely to die or be critically injured in car crashes when they're driving. Um, medicines not tested on women because we have periods and so that makes us more volatile and it's harder to test drugs on us. But actually that's life. That's who we are mm -hmm. and we need those things. You know, um, it, it, it's, it gives example after example after example where women haven't been considered. And, of course, this is the, the reason why we now need to bring gender lenses and bring a gender impact assessment to, to the work that's uh, covered by the, uh, the Gender Equality Act. But that book is um, has been a game changer for women, but also for men. And so, where I, where people ask me if I've got a somebody asked me a question yesterday that worked in IT, and they said we're very male dominated. They just don't believe there's a problem. And I I thought that would be a perfect book because that's facts and data and it's well researched. <laughs> just give them that and have them read it. Yeah. And I can tell you, it was it's been a revelation for many of the men that have read that book. They've gone, oh. Okay, yeah. now yeah. I see there is a problem. So yeah. I reckon I recommend that book. Yeah, or you just get Joe Rogan to read out that book to people, and then you'll have the whole world will be um, connected to it. all of the men in the world will be on on board. Um, no, uh, thank you so much. And actually, just on that book, I uh, I know that that's uh, particularly around medical research, the the gender bias built into the way we. Um, uh, test psychiatric uh, medications yeah, um, yeah. or don't test psychiatric me medications and the impacts that has on women. I'm just anecdotal experience from my previous practice that as an advocate in this space is that um, women effectively become um, 
prevented from having children um, because of the medications that they're put on involuntarily. And um, we, we need to we need to be having collecting more data on these things, both on the use of those medications, but also in the the design of those medications, like you say. So yeah, that's a very two very well worthwhile um, recommendations that we'll put in the show notes. The the, the implicit association test and um, Invisible Women, um, a wonderful book. Thank you so much, uh, Nikki. It's been my pleasure. Oh, thank you so much, Simon. Thanks for having me.